This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Joining me today is a kick-ass musician and songwriter that rose to the top of the charts as a member of the iconic band, The Go-Go's. She's the author of a compelling memoir called All I Ever Wanted. Her journey went from opening for the Rolling Stones to the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. On this episode, we hear the story of John Belushi following her band, how she finishes writing her songs incrementally, and how being in a band was like being a member of a family that she really needed. Coming up, I share a Valentine with everyone in class as I chat with writer and rock mom, Kathy Valentine. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Woo! Yay! I'm clapping for myself. I'm clapping for you, too. This is super fun to be able to chat. What instrument did you start your musical journey on? To go way back, I think the violin was my very first instrument. I joined the school orchestra. My grandfather in England, he played violin. So I went for that instrument and played it for a few years in the orchestra. And then I think I moved to piano and guitar. One of my big regrets as a musician is that I ever stopped playing piano. I, it's just, I wish I had kept it up. I'd be really good on the piano now. And now I, I'm not good at all. Oh, really? Okay. And it's not for lack of interest in music. So was it not having a piano or what, what made you step away from the piano? I was learning it kind of at the same time I was playing guitar and I was being taught piano and it was very classical training, like reading music. And I had an amazing teacher who's still alive to this day and still offers to give me piano lessons at 90 years old. It was, <laughs> it was structured and reading music and guitar was kind of more self-taught and a little bit more fun as a, as a teenager just to make noise and not have to be studying and practicing scales and all that. You took to, the, to music as a genre. Like a lot of kids at a certain point push away from practice. You leaned into it just by taking on different instruments. Yeah, it's funny. I, I used to say, like, you know, we, we always kind of create these little narratives that we like the way they sound. And I remember I used to say that as soon as I picked up a guitar, I knew on a cellular level that that was what I was going to do. And when I wrote my memoir, I realized that that wasn't exact, that that was a narrative I had kind of just clung to that really when I picked up a guitar, I, it was an acoustic guitar and I was learning kind of your basic, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man and Wildwood Flower, kind of your basic folky songs that you can learn on a D and a G and a C chord and whatnot. And it wasn't until I kind of got more into rock and roll and got my electric guitar that I knew on the cellular level that that's what I was going to do with my life. Well, speaking on, uh, this just came up because of the word cellular. Do you remember your life before cell phones in terms of your creativity? 
Yeah, I do. I mean, I've got I've got remnants and artifacts of it everywhere. I've got big plastic crates filled with spiral notebooks that have all my fits and starts and ideas, just tons of them. And of course, now I have folders of documents on my computer, but I still have the artifacts before that. And the most useful thing with the cell phones is the memo app, because if you go to idea for a melody or something, I can just, I, I now have probably 7,000 little snippets of me playing a guitar lick or a chord progression or singing a melody in the car. So yeah, I remember both. But that's great. That's a quick capture where it used to be that you would have to race home to an instrument to memorialize it. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, before, definitely, it would probably just disappear. Now, it basically disappears anyway. I mean, who really sits down and goes through their 7,000 voice memos? Not me. But it's still there. If I'm ever completely, like, I don't know, stuck or trapped or actually for real in captivity with my phone, I have lots of ideas in there. So when you went from, say, learning these instruments and practicing to actually making music, where you were working on original work, what did that unlock in you? I'll say that from the very beginning, I think one of the pe things people have trouble with when they pick up instruments is it's not very fun when you don't know very much. And that's probably true for a lot of different arts. When you're struggling to play, you're, you're put your fingers in the right place and, and get some dexterity and some fluidity to moving from chord to chord. The only way to do that is to do it over and over and over with practice. And one thing that makes it less boring is to write songs. So I started writing at the very beginning, I started writing songs and they were just hideous, awful and hilarious songs. And I still, rem still remember them. Shortly after I got some dexterity, I became more fixated on becoming the player I wanted to, to be. And I didn't begin writing songs again. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm 19 years old. My best friend has abandoned me. I pull out my guitar and for the first time I started writing songs that expressed what I was going through. And it, that was a real turning point for me. It's when songwriting became a form of therapy, like a friend. That's when I, I wouldn't say I felt like it, but I would say objectively looking back that that's when I really became a musician because I was connecting my external circumstances, channeling my feelings through my instrument or my art to make something. Yeah, that's great. The book you're referring to is All I Ever Wanted. It's an amazing memoir because it's truthful, it's deep, it's it's relevant, and it's brave. I have to say, as a writer, you're an excellent writer, but you chose the very hardest thing to write first. Like a memoir is far harder to write than a fantasy or a narrative. It's a brutal facing of yourself and deciding what to share, what not to share, what how's my family to be concerned and that sort of thing. Tell me what that particular courageous journey was for you to face writing a memoir? I mean, I agree with you in one sense, but for me, it was a very practical, strategic beginning thing to write because I want to be a writer. I wanted to, and my dream was to write novels. And yet I'm an avid reader. And I think that the, my perfectionism stopped me from doing that because I was like, how is anything I'm going to write ever going to compare to 
you know, all the best writers. And if I couldn't be one of the best, I didn't want to do it. So there's these elements came together. I wanted to write. I started realizing that I had a story to tell that was maybe compelling and important, important in that there's not a lot of women that have devoted themselves to to music as a career and done it for their entire adult life. And so that's different enough that I thought that warranted being told. And I'd read enough memoirs where I thought, well, I had some kind of crazy ass shit happen to me too. <laughs> so there was that. But then when I combined that thing, I was like, okay, I'm known as a musician. Nobody's going to like say, oh, here's this great literary novel from the bass player of the Go-Go's. It just wasn't going to be a good transition. I'm very practical that way. And then you're competing with every literary genius in the country as well, you know, or the world even. So, but I thought memoir, that's my story. Nobody can tell my story except me. Knowing I had a good story and also strategically going, if I do a really good job on this memoir, it's not going to be that big of a jump for people to accept that I can also write literary fiction. It'll be like more like, okay, well, maybe she could do it. She did a good job on this. And I, I'm just always, I'm always for like whatever makes that door open a little wider and makes it easier to walk through. You've done a great job and think the door is wide open for whatever you want to write from yeah. here forward. There were so many things in the memoir and I, don't, I, I would encourage the listener to invest in the time to read it. And I know that it just came out as an audiobook as well. And did you end up doing your own reading on the audiobook or was it someone else? I did the the audiobook. I did it in two days. The really cool thing about the audiobook is that I also did a soundtrack to the book. And if you buy the book, the only way to hear it is to download it or listen on to get it from Amazon or listen on Spotify or something. But if you get the audiobook, it's integrated. So you hear my voice reading the story, but you also hear the soundtrack that goes with it. So that's cool. That's super cool. I like it. It's almost like sitting down to a musical story. What it really was, was I just thought, what can I do that other writers can't do? What can I do that sets me apart? Kind of this little gem that people discover. And then I hear from people that they love, love, love it and love the experience of listening and having that music too. As a musician, it was one of the most creative and interesting and fun things I've ever done. And I want to continue on with that you're on the forefront of a notion here that let's say what graphic novels did, which was take literature and show it to people visually. I mean, I think it, there's an, a, people getting accustomed to it. So the listener here goes to your audiobook. It's almost like film scoring the story. And that's in music. And maybe you as a musician could tell me, but I always feel that the music has such more emotional resonance that lifts the words, that it carries the emotional tone of the lyric. Music has a way of tapping into feelings unlike any other art form, I believe. And it's not to say that the others don't do it, but it's just a very different place that it weasels in from. You know, if you took like the approachability of a person into their feelings as like a, it's just a very certain angle that the music comes in. And it was really exemplified. There's a chapter where it's called Just Do It, where I write about a rape when I was 14 years old. And I was able to write about it with still some distance. But when I did the soundtrack to that chapter, it unlocked the the grieving and the mourning that had been shoved down for 40 
something years ago. I basically grieved for three days. I cried nonstop. It was like I'd never let it out. And it was fascinating to me that I could write the chapter and that but not be the greatest, easiest, fun chapter to write, but it, what unlocked the grieving was writing the music and writing the song that went with it. And boy, that just, that was like the key. It must have been a powerful relief, though, not knowing that that was still trapped inside you. Yeah, and I think with any kind of trauma that we repress, it's not so much that it goes away, but there's some incredible power in just acknowledging it, acknowledging that it's there and kind of honoring the person that wasn't protected and wasn't able to not have the bad thing happen. Again, it doesn't mean it has to go away or erase it, but just there's just acknowledging it that it was there and that it happened and that it wasn't right and it was painful is super powerful and healing. And you had a challenging upbringing, which you explore in your memoir uh, with a single mother, and you are a single mother now, but you're not the rock and roll teenage daughter, now you're the rock and roll mom. <laughs> yeah. Tell me what the flipping roles, how you as a mom guide your daughter being in the music industry. I was completely unparented. I'm a parent for sure. We're really, really close, my daughter and I. At the same time, I have boundaries that I didn't have, but I didn't have my daughter until I was almost 44. And I had been sober since the age of 30. I had my shit together when I became a mom. My mom had me when she was 21. Very different circumstances. I, I had sobriety. I had therapy. I had financial security. I was married at the time. We had a very good, privileged life that we brought our daughter into. Yeah, and you're doing a great job. We have teenagers similar. I have a 19-year-old. And you know, we look at our whatever part of our world being a latchkey kid or doing something, and now we're in a new world where school stops and they're taking it from home and it's online and the rules all just changed in the last couple of years where it's like, why do I even have to go to class? You proved for a year I could be in my bedroom. It does challenge the parent because for me, I don't really have all the answers. This was a precedent we didn't have. Some kids are, are more introverted and probably had a little easier time, but my daughter was really wanting to experience the, the social aspect of being able to drive and go hang out with friends and, you know, feeling confident for the first time and after getting through adolescence and kind of feeling like a, a young person ready to, and then all of a sudden it's all, that's all off the table and there wasn't any fixing it. Sometimes it was just listening and holding them when they cry and saying, yeah, this really sucks. You're right. You are being robbed. There was no like, suck it up. I used to say to my kids, get Texas tough because I didn't have anything better to say, but I'm not even a Texan. So that was just a cop out way to make them get up on the soccer field or something. But it happened to artists. It happened to friends of ours. Everyone, suddenly venues were gone and performance was gone and production was gone everybody was facing new world order in terms of what's our purpose and what's our passion. During part of the time you had written this memoir prior to that, and then it was published in 2020. Is that right? Yeah, it was published April 1st, which is right when lockdown started. And the title, All I Ever Wanted, comes from the song Vacation. It's 
a part of the lyric from the song Vacation that you were author or co-author to? I wrote the song Vacation and took it to the band. And I didn't have a title for the book for a long time. I had a list of potential titles. And it was kind of driving me crazy. When I write a song, I really like to have the title. It's kind of like the beacon that everything that you want to put in that song that's kind of what you're aiming for. And I was worried about all I ever wanted because I think there's like a romance novel or something with the same title. Uh -huh. Not only was it the second line of the chorus of my signature biggest song I've ever written, but it also seemed to capture the entire theme of the book, which on the surface is all I ever wanted was to make it in a band. But underneath, as you read the book, you see that all I really wanted was a family. The idea of a band became that kind of surrogate pseudo family that I longed for. You had been in bands earlier in your life, and then you had moved to Los Angeles. And tell me how that door opened for you to join the Go-Go's. I had moved to L.A. to make it in a band. I thought it's got to be New York or L.A., has to be. And I knew that I would probably struggle and be poor for a while. And I thought L.A. might be easier to be poor so I moved out there, got to L.A., started playing. Didn't feel like some of the bands that started around the same time as my band, the Textones, began getting record deals or getting to be more moving up, like selling out the whiskey or headlining the Starwood, the big kind of happening clubs. And my band, the Textones, felt like it was stalling out. I quit the band, and it was in a very rare place of not knowing. I was very goal-oriented. I see what I want and I map out the steps and I just very methodically get where I'm going. And it was the first time in many years where I was like, now what? This band isn't working out. I don't want to be a solo artist. What am I going to do? Trying to write songs, definitely drinking. And I found a person that took me under their wing. She had a, a really nice house in the Hollywood Hills. And I was feeling like a rock star, even though I was completely lost and had no idea how I was absolutely really going to be a rock star. And it was under those circumstances that I went to see a band play one night and I met one of the Go-Go's and she said, in a week, we have eight sold out shows at the Whiskey and our bass player is sick and can't do them. Do you play bass? Because I was in that moment of like, like if I had been in a band and we were happening, it wouldn't, I would have gone, no, I don't play bass. I play guitar and I'm in a cool band, but I wasn't, I was like lost. And it, this seemed like almost like a lifesaver that had been thrown out to me. I was like, yeah, I play the bass. And I proceeded to learn the bass and learn their set. And the very short time I had, as soon as I started listening to the Go-Go songs, I knew they were kind of a happening band. They had eight sold out shows at the Whiskey. They were obviously more happening than I was. I wasn't a super fan. I wasn't that familiar with them. When I listened to the songs, I started thinking this is the kind of band that could make it. This is what I came here for. And there was another big element in that when I first started to be an, a musician, I really wanted to play with other females. I wanted to do this with, with like-minded girls my own age. I became very focused on they're not going to want me to go. That's what I thought. And I was good, you know. I, I, I had five years of playing under my belt. and from Texas, which means I had a really wide variety of influences and styles of music. And I really un had a great understanding of music. I mean, I grew up from the time I was a kid seeing amazing music in Austin. 
it was always been a great music city here. So I did a good job and I was right. They didn't want me to leave. You were a guitarist. You were not a bass player. Did you own a bass or had you played the bass prior to that? I picked one up and stuff. I think my very first band, we would kind of rotate around. So it wasn't like I'd never held one, but it, I was not a bass player. I did not own a bass and I, I borrowed one. <laughs> For those eight gigs, you borrowed a bass? Yeah, I borrowed one. And then I borrowed a different one when we got a record deal about four or five months later and had to go to, to New York. Then I started getting my own. In your book, I read that there was a special memento from that first gig uh, with the Go-Go's that you have. Can you share what that was? The, are you talking about the photo with John Belushi? Yeah. That the show was enthralling. I, I start the book out with that very first show with the Go-Go's. It was very exciting because it was sold out. I had done quite a bit in bands, but I'd never experienced playing a sold out show in front of people kind of going just nuts. And on top of that, in our dressing room, all the musicians in town were trying to come back and, and say hi and hang out with us. And I, I hadn't been in that experience. And then, of course, we had, you know, one of the most beloved stars in the country at that time was John Belushi. And Saturday Night Live was huge from the set, from the minute it came out in the 70s. So that was terribly exciting. We reconnected. Once he saw the band, he became a really big fan. And, and we reconnected when we were doing our record. And after our record, we did a, a club show in, in New York at the Peppermint Lounge. And John was the MC that brought us on stage. And for the first couple of years of, of the band's rise, John was kind of popping in and out of things. Yeah, it was, it was really, really special. What I liked is that because of the Blues Brothers and his musical taste, I was kind of the one in the band that spoke his language because the other women in the Go-Go's are awesome and they're great, but they didn't grow up like knowing who John Lee Hooker was or Howlin' Wolf or... B.B. King or Albert King or any, and I was like, this is what I grew up with. So we had, we had a musical bond. What is it about that riff-centric, heavy blues rock that gets your motor revving? When music first starts kind of really affecting us as, you know, adolescents and, and puberty, I think it never really quite goes away. You know, you, your tastes open up and you like all the contemporary things that you're also experiencing as a young adult and whatnot. But that stuff that really grabs you in the first place always has a, a, a spot for you. And I don't know. I mean, ZZ Top, when I was 13, that was one of my favorite bands. You know, that was in Texas. ZZ Top was part of the landscape. The Fabulous Thunderbirds were like, that was my template of what a cool band was, you know, and and Stevie Ray Vaughan. So it was just yeah. part of the, my musical DNA. You know, if you grew up in California, it's the Beach Boys and, you know, Jan and Dean. If you grew up yeah. in Texas, it's Freddie King. Was there a specific song as a kid that changed your, was at a transitional moment in your life? I would go spend summers in Lubbock, Texas with my dad's family. I was there. And at that time, I was probably nine years old, very much into bubblegum, top 40 music, Tommy James, Crimson and Clover, all this stuff, Dizzy, the Archies. And I'm in Lubbock, and my older cousin, 16, uh, was listening to Cream. And I remember sitting outside the bedroom door listening to, he was playing Sunshine of Your Love over and over and over. It was a, one of those moments where all of a sudden I was like, oh, music 
can be elicit a different thing than just kind of bopping and singing along to the radio. It can be, it wasn't that I understood it at nine years old, but I felt it. I felt a different sort of reaction. When you write songs, do you write alone? Do you do songwriting dates or collaborate with others? What's what's the approach you take when you're searching for new material? I have written with, with other songwriters that will sit down and just whip out lyrics. And I'm not like that. I craft them a lot. Like I will put placeholders in and know it's not good enough and just and just incrementally. So one thing that I started doing in the last probably 15 to 20 years is I like collaborating a lot, especially sitting down with playing music. But lyrically, I, if I'm collaborating on lyrics, I really like getting up in the morning with my coffee and or, or late at night before I go to bed, sitting down with the notebook or my laptop and just really working through lyrics. I don't, so lyrically, I like to spend time on my own or have somebody send me their ideas and let me look through them and cherry pick the lines I like. Uh, but musically, it's a lot easier to be in the room together. And I do it on my own. Since I became proficient with using technology and I have Pro Tools software, I enjoy a lot just sitting at my computer and making beats and then picking up an instrument and adding, building up something out of nothing. I enjoy that. Sometimes I just sit down with a guitar and play. I don't have one way of doing it, but I do have one way of finishing, which is basically incremental progress. And sometimes it's just a matter of like, get one line further today or just get just get this chord progression worked out where you're happy with it. And I do think of songs, I think of them as little properties once they exist. And one of the reasons I keep all those notebooks and keep everything is that you can go back. You can go back. They're like little properties and they can be remodeled and they can be taken down to the studs and rebuilt. And I'm not a home builder or a realtor, but the analogy works for me. You also see the repurposing of the content. You wrote that song, Head Over Heels, which eventually also was the title of a, a Broadway salute to the Go-Go's music. Things kind of continue to come back to life as well. That was a producer's choice to call the musical Head Over Heels. In retrospect, it might not have been the best choice. It's kind of a generic phrase that's not really exclusively associated with the Go-Go's like we got the beat is yeah. or vacation is. So that's what they chose. And yeah, it's like repurposing is, is it's, it's a fun thing to do. Absolutely. And do new versions of things. The last two musical things I made were me covering my own songs that the Go-Go's had done and doing them the way I would do it. Yeah. You can, people can hear a little sample of that on kathyvalentine.com. The single, we don't get along is there where, you did it as a duet. I got a chance to listen to a little of that this morning before we talk. The duet with uh, Rhett Miller. Yeah, that was fun. Like that music software is like, you know, like anything. If you don't keep doing it, you'll end up sitting down to do something. It's like, oh, how do you do that? Oh, how do I move this? And you spend half your creative time looking up, you know, YouTube tutorials, <laughs> trying to remember shit. So even if it's just like, but I try to make sure I don't lose my chops on my recording software because literally there's so much to learn and do and, and just 
forgetting a couple of things adds, it just interferes with the creative process when you have to kind of go remember how to do it. It seems very interesting that you have uh, home life, but then you also have these spurts where you have to suddenly take great responsibility. Like the Go-Go's were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in October of 2021. When I watched that on YouTube, I see that you stepped out front with as the opening spokesperson for the Go-Go's in accepting that induction to the Hall of Fame. It was a very articulate, moving speech about one, celebrating possibility and opening the doors for more women, believing that if there are more women involved, then more women will be be seen and be allowed inside. I thought it was amazing. How did you get picked to be the lead on that? It was a, an incredible honor. And I had, in the not too distant past, had some acrimonious, terrible, horrible, actually, stuff with the band. And I was out of the band for many years and got back in 2017, end of 2017, maybe 2018, when the musical came out and the band was very remorseful and sad about how they had treated me. And I was, of course, really happy to be back. And it was the band that asked me to speak first. And partly it was because I picked up a little side hustle of doing some speeches and keynote speeches here and there. They felt like I wouldn't be nervous and that I would do a good job. So I was I was thrilled and I worked hard on the speech and I did it in a way that I thought was really smart because I knew they would probably cut sections out. So I structured it in a way that I felt like the zingers would all be kept and that if they cut anything out, it would still be coherent and made sense. They did cut stuff, but it seems seamless. And probably the full speech is, is somewhere on YouTube. But what they aired was a bit of a shortened version. And it did exactly what I wanted it to do. Well, you were very confident and poised. And you had just come off of playing several songs, which was really super fun to see the group reunited. And each had their own signature style of an outfit and very strong female presence and great musicianship. So it was very rewarding to see that. And to be inducted, I must have been a big deal because you guys were really the first all-female band that made a giant splash. Well, it was definitely the highlight of my musical career, and it was terribly exciting. And there was moments where it felt like imposter syndrome, and then there was moments where it felt like, yeah, this is exactly as it should be. And it was just, I felt very present. A lot of people would say, oh, finally, it took them long enough because we've been eligible for 15 or 20 years. And I felt like it was a good time to happen because we had overcome a lot of toxicity within the band and dysfunction and grudges from going back to the 80s. And it felt like we had healed and really kind of come into a very good place as a band. And, and to have that be a crowning achievement was a good thing. The journey started out so red hot. This first album you had, 2 million albums sold. It was one of the most successful debut albums. So what a place to begin. And then by nature, ticket sales or album sales, they fluctuate. To be able to come back around, to have the staying power, that the music is still there. I saw that crowd watching you guys play. And by the way, they have to see Drew Barrymore fawn over you guys in the introduction. She gives the great testimonial to it being her first album as a kid and how much it changed her. It's a very, very moving moment for her to pass that on to you and then see you guys play. 
Yeah, I think Drew did an amazing job. And here's the issue with having more women in the rock hall. It's like there weren't as many women in bands, and some of them did not have the amount of sales or hits that the male counterparts did. But that does not mean that the influence was not huge. I mean, Susie Quattro is a great example. She was a, a rock star in England and known in Australia and throughout Europe. But she wasn't known in the States until she got on Happy Days and took the role of Leather Tuscadero. So a lot of people in America, they look at Susie Quattro and go, oh, Happy Days. But for me, or Joan Jett, or countless women of my age, we look at Susie Quattro and go, we wouldn't be doing what we are doing if it wasn't for her. So to me, that is warrants being in the Rock Hall of Fame. When you inspire people to do something that they would not have thought of, it's what I said in my speech, visibility is key. If you can see it, you can be it. I think Drew did the, this wonderful job of making it very clear why the Go-Go's belonged in that institution. Because before us, they inducted LL Cool J, who's sold tens of millions of records and is considered a hip-hop kind of trailblazer, doing things before any other artist. And before him, we had Tina Turner, who's decades of, of hits, and Carole King, who's sold like 50 million records and has had 50 million hits. And then here's the Go-Go's, who made four records and had a handful of hit songs. Why are we there? And Drew made it clear to anybody who watches that show on HBO or was in that arena, she made it clear why we should be there. And it was about possibility and empowering young girls and not just girls. I mean, we've had many, many, I've had so many people that are guys too walk up and say, seeing the Go-Go's when I was a 12 year old boy made anything seem possible. I've had strangers in New York City walk up to me and say, I left my town in Nebraska and moved to New York to work in the theater because of the Go-Go's. And you would think like, what, what? But that is so valid. It's just as valid as lots of hits, lots of millions and millions of records. So Drew, I was really happy that she was able to do that for us. And when we walked out on that stage, the whole place was already standing up. Yeah, she did it from such an authentic place. I thought I was listening to seven or eight-year-old Drew Barrymore introduce you. That's that's how impassioned she was to be a part of, of being able to bring you guys out. I'm really glad she was the one that did it. It's a quite a process asking someone to induct you. You know, it starts out with a list of people, and then the Rock Hall kind of takes it from there. You know, it's like, oh, well, Drew's been a fan. Would she be good? And, you know, it's like, well, maybe we should have a musician do it. Well, you know, and it ended up being the very perfect person. Yeah. Hey, let me tell everyone that I saw you the other night with your new group, the Blue Bonnets, in Austin. We happened to be in the same town. And I went over to a club called Sea Boys. And I was, first of all, I hate to say it, thrilled that you were on at 8 o'clock. Because, yeah, you know, as the, as the players and the audience get older, you say, hmm. I don't know if I'm ready to stay up till midnight, but it was an amazing event to watch because you guys really, really wailed. And I saw you as a guitarist, you really rocked on that guitar. And those songs, one of them, I thought this kind of got some ventures feeling to it. And then I came back and I was looking at the names of some of the songs on Spotify and you have a song, is it called Don't Walk Run or something like that? But, but the ventures had a thing called 
Walk, Don't Run. And I didn't know if that was an homage to them or if you were aware of that. The song you heard that reminded you of the Ventures might have been the instrumental we did, which is a friend of ours song. We didn't do that song. So, okay. And the band is not new. We've been together since 2011, but we're very inconsistent in that our main drummer lives in LA and I do other things and COVID. We hadn't played much in a couple of years because of that, but it, it's a great band. It's a, a pleasure playing with, with such good musicians and our influences range from like Iggy Pop to Howlin' Wolf. So it's, it's a cool band. It's very we call it garage glam blues rock. It's really rocking. And and I do enjoy playing guitar. I was peaked as a guitarist, I think, in the 90s. And when I had my daughter in 2002, you know, I don't know. I just didn't feel like that was going to be what I did for the next 20 years of my life was be a lead guitar player. I felt like being a mom was going to be the main thing. So I, I, put, I didn't put my focus into it. But I love to celebrate great women guitar players. And Yves Monsey, who is in the Blue Bonnets, is just a stellar, stellar, amazing guitarist. And I love being able to give her a vehicle that shows her off. I play, I'm a good guitar player. I, I know that. And I like what I do. I'm not as technically where I used to be or where if I, if that's all I wanted to do, I would try to strive for. But I have something that I think is key to any artist, which is I have really good taste and good style and judgment as to what to leave in and what to leave out. Yeah. And you can still play and you've got, I know by the time this airs, these shows may be behind you, but you do have some upcoming dates with the Go-Go's. Is that in the States or in Europe? Well, we're supposed to go to England in, in June, but who knows? I mean, it's ever since COVID, I, I believe it when it happens. I'm supposed to be in LA Friday and start a few rehearsals to do a series of go-go shows that were started out as a tour in the summer of 2020 and have been pushed and canceled and rescheduled several times. And they're now down to five shows. It'll be five glorious shows to jam with the gals and move forward. We can only be hopeful when we're doing the thing we like doing most and playing music is your thing. You've got a bright future as a writer. I look forward to whatever it is you're writing next, whether it's musical or a novel. And I really very much appreciate you investing the time to talk today and share your story. Oh, thank you. It was really nice talking to you too. And I hope that people like the combo. Folks can learn a lot more about you by going to kathyvalentine.com and listening nostalgically to the music that you have built your reputation on. Kathy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just two dot com and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghost stage, a circus 